between the Partridge family and the moon landing, we got a heck of a show ahead of us. The Mike Tomano Happening. Welcome, my friends, to the Mike Tomano Happening. And uh, a couple of things to get to. My weekly Tomano blog is available at MikeTomano.com. This week, we tackle censorship in the wake of the ongoing cancellation of Joe Rogan and the recent Whoopi Goldberg suspension. And uh, I do want to thank all of you for the response to this podcast and especially uh, the explosion of the Tomano blog. I was quite proud of uh, the recent blog, which is called Look Who's Not Talking or You Don't Say, which is about uh, Whoopi and Joe Rogan and the woke movement and the cancel culture and the hypocrisy of all of it. I want to thank all of those people out there who responded to it and sent me some beautiful compliments about the uh, writing that I did. And uh, none other than Ted Nugent who shared it with his audience, called it a stone-cold masterpiece, which, you know, yeah, yeah, made me feel really good. So, but I do want to thank you for the response to uh, all the work I'm doing. And uh, this podcast continues to grow and definitely evolve. Some interesting interviews are upcoming, more conversations on media and beyond with uh, some really cool people. And continuing on with our Game Changer series, I've added an album, a book, and a film to my list for this discussion again this week. And for the book, I'm going to go with Ladies and Gentlemen, Lenny Bruce. Now, I discovered this book around the age of 10, and at the time, I was obsessed with stand-up comedians. I, I caught Carlin and David Brenner on The Tonight Show, and... You know, everybody, Jackie Vernon, all these cats, they just mesmerized me, and I loved what they were doing. They were writing and performing, which is the basis of everything that I wanted to do and have done. So I I would even watch like the B-listers on late night uh, shows like Make Me Laugh with Bobby Van. (laughs) Some of you people remember that. Contestants had to not burst out laughing while Bruce Baum and Gallagher just, you know, bombarded them with rapid fire jokes I would catch uh, people like Franklin Ajaya and Gary Muldeer on the Midnight Special. And, of course, comedy albums were finding their way into my budding collection of records. I had Cheech and Chong, Bill Cosby, Bob Newhart Records, Phyllis Diller. And then I would sneak George Carlin's Class Clown and assorted Richard Pryor Records, whose titles I will not mention to keep from being canceled, but I would sneak them into my room for clandestine headphone listening. And now my collection is in the hundreds of uh, comedy albums. I've been seeking them out and collecting them since I was, you know, 10 years old. But I didn't really know about Lenny Bruce at that time. There was a big department store on Western Avenue in Chicago called Corvettes. And this was back in the day when you could, you know, leave your kid unattended in a record department while you went shopping. And so one day... My mother was shopping, and I went through the comedy record selection in their, you know, record department. And it was pretty deep and pretty varied, more so than most local shops. You know, most shops had Richard Pryor, George Carlin, Cheech and Chong, Bob Newhart. 
Bill Cosby. But this one had all kinds of people I'd never heard of. And Corvette's record department's comedy selection had Red Fox, Moms Mabley, uh, Godfrey Cambridge, and a bunch of assorted unknown black comics on the Laugh label. That's a history we can delve into uh, on a show someday. It's really uh, legendary. And there were a number of records by this cat, Lenny Bruce. And the album covers were dark-natured. You know, there was a picnic in a cemetery scene, Lenny sitting on a toilet. Um, And some of the text on the album covers implied this comic was arrested for his material. And I was intrigued. There was one particular album that showed a black-and-white stark photo of Lenny just giving the finger. And there wasn't much mirth in the photo. So on the way home, I asked my mom, who's Lenny Bruce? And she told me he was an adult comedian who got in a lot of trouble for the things he had said and that he had died a few years earlier of a drug overdose. And when we got home, I asked my dad about him. And my dad's reply was, oh, he, he was a dirty comedian. They wouldn't, they wouldn't even let him perform. So I was thinking, who was this guy? Right. I'm 10 and I'm hearing this going, this must be the holy grail of comedy. So in my record shopping, I did come across uh, later an album called The Best of Lenny Bruce. And I rushed home. I put the needle on the groove as soon as I could. And I couldn't wait. Headphones were on. Here we go. But the material was much tamer than I expected. I mean, surely this stuff wasn't something that you would get arrested for. There was one particular bit, how to relax your colored friends at parties, which was definitely edgy. But, you know, by this time I had heard Richard Pryor and it was hardly earth shattering to my ears. But it was poignant in its depiction of the nuances of racism. And I caught that. So, mind you, I was uh, too young to realize the difference in decades and the relaxation of acceptable commentary that had come in the wake of Lenny Bruce. I mean, what Lenny did was open the door for Richard Pryor and George Carlin and the rest of the edgy comedians and gave them permission to attack institutions and remove that showbiz veneer and reveal artistic truth and honesty. So the biography by Albert Goldman was something I came across in my cousin Sandy's basement. Again, at age 10, I was playing with my cousin Randy, Sandy's son, in their family home basement. And if I remember correctly, these 44 years later, we were pretending to be in the army. You know, we were playing with toy machine guns and we had our plastic helmets on and we were hiding behind couches and ambushing each other. And I came across a box of books on the floor and I, you know, I looked through them. History books, there was assorted fiction. And there it was, a book about this guy, Lenny Bruce, this enigma. And I asked my cousin Sandy if I could borrow it, and she was a bit hesitant at first. You know, why would a 10-year-old want to read about Lenny Bruce? She relented, and I took the book home to read. I mean, I was mature enough to deal with the profanity and sexual content, but I was drawn into the rise and fall of this artist's life. The smoky strip clubs, the derelicts, the gangsters, the police harassment, the shady business dealings. And this was the seedy underbelly of showbiz that I was never exposed to up until that time. You know, television stars, rock stars, comedians, actors, actresses, they were all larger than life figures leading seemingly perfect, carefree, rich lives of happiness and joy. And this book showed the reality, the struggles and the desperation of a creative life. 
So I returned the book to Sandy after I read it, and I sought out my own copy. And it led me down a path of devotion to Lenny's work and provided a sense of resilience that I carry with me throughout my professional career to this day. You know, how important is your work and how far are you going to go in compromising your vision before you're now doing it for all the wrong reasons? That's a dilemma that I've faced many times in my career. This week's Game Changer album is Roxy Music's Greatest Hits, which came into my life around the age of 13. I've always had an aversion to Greatest Hits albums. I always wanted the collection of albums that a band puts out. And you vinyl collectors out there, you know. You music aficionados, you know. We kind of frown upon the greatest hits. Oh, occasionally I'll grab a greatest hits by a band I'm not that interested in. But real fans don't do greatest hits albums. But this was the only album I had ever seen by this band, Roxy Music. I'd never heard of them. And by this time, you know, around the age of 13, you, you know, I was a music fanatic, always looking to discover new bands and go into new musical adventure territory. But I never heard of Roxy Music. And as is the case in so many of my early record shopping tales, I came across a cassette at Tape Town, which, which was by this time cruising music. It had been bought out by a store that had uh, two locations. So as I browsed, I noticed this cassette, and the cover photo had a gold record laid upon what looked to be a leopard print. It was vague and intriguing, and on a few occasions over the decades, you know, and on a few occasions, even to today, I'll, uh, I'll do a blind buy. I'll just grab an album because I'm intrigued by the cover, or it's something I'd never heard before and it looks uh, interesting. So I bought the Roxy Music Greatest Hits album on cassette, and no one I knew had ever heard of them. So I had no idea what to expect, but it blew me away. I mean, there was such a diverse set of tunes on this album. It was definitely New Wave. It was definitely art rock. It had moments of progressive rock, but without any of the sonic trappings of New Wave music. You know, it was the musicianship firmly rooted in schooled playing, not an overload of synthesizers, but more so electronic effects that were decorated the tunes. And the compositions were based on traditional instrumentation, you know, piano, guitar, bass, drums, keyboards. And the vocalist was this romantic crooner named Brian Ferry. He really grabbed my ear. Very cool stuff. And I became obsessed with Roxy Music and filled the gaps in my collection quickly, buying up their entire catalog of music. By my sophomore year in high school, I was the ambassador for Roxy Music, the chief promoter among my friends, and I introduced everyone I could to their wonderful, wonderful work. And my friend Rick and I would take that same Archer to Racine bus ride that we took to uh, see Neil Young to catch the band Roxy Music at the UIC Pavilion May 14th, 1983 on their High Road tour. And Roxy Music, they didn't sound similar to any other band. I mean, with the stuff I was listening to at that time, I could make connections. You know, Uriah Heep and Deep Purple were similar. Rush definitely took a cue from Led Zeppelin, Yes, and Cream. And you could hear the influence of Bowie in bands like The Sweet. But for me, hearing Roxy Music was a fresh new sound. It was like the first time I heard Alice Cooper or Black Sabbath. This band was a total original. My film pick for this week in the list of uh, game changers is Animal House. By the time it was released in 1978, my 
adolescent dreams of becoming a performer were based on John Belushi. I would watch Saturday Night Live and just be wrapped with John Belushi. And I would listen to the National Lampoon Radio Hour and read every article I could on John Belushi. He was my hero. And then John Landis directed this piece of beautiful scatological humor from a wild script that came from National Lampoon alumni, Harold Ramis, Chris Miller, and the one and only Doug Kenny. And I had discovered National Lampoon magazine in the seventh grade, and about the same time that I discovered the radio hour. And I knew Belushi had roots in, uh, in, in the radio hour and on their albums and stuff. And so, you know, National Lampoon was, uh, was a sacred institution for me because I found that magazine around seventh grade. Whenever my friends and I had to go to the Garfield Ridge Public Library to do homework or research for a project or something, uh, we would go to the Garfield Ridge Public Library on Archer Avenue on Chicago's South Side, and I would definitely head over to the uh, periodicals and the magazine stacks and devour every story I could from National Lampoon issues that I found. I would take change to the copying machine and make photocopies of these great pieces and put them in my folder to bring home with me, and I would study them. I would, I would read them and laugh and study them, and it was the total disregard for taste in this wonderful dark humor that shaped my understanding of creativity without boundaries, without fear. So hearing that John Belushi was going to star in this film that came from National Lampoon, I could not wait to see it. It was rated R, and the only way that I, being 11 at the time, could see it would be to accompany my sister and her boyfriend to the show, and I loved every second of it. Although my sister and her beau might have sank in their seats a few times during a few scenes at the Ford City Cinema while we watched it. Because, yeah, some people may have looked sideways at a couple bringing an 11-year-old kid to see this sort of film. But, you know, my family knew how serious I was about writing and performing and how much John Belushi meant to me. And they had the same sort of relaxed attitude toward my listening to Richard Pryor and George Carlin albums. It wasn't a purient interest. It was an obsession with the creativity behind these artists' work. So there you have it. Roxy Music's Greatest Hits, my album. Ladies and Gentlemen, Lenny Bruce, my book. And Animal House, my game-changer film this week. And now to our guest, the man who shares each morning with me. The man who has helped me build the top-rated radio show in our market. Twice, he's my confidant, my friend, and my cohort. I'm proud to welcome Mr. Rob West, this week's member of the Mike Tomano Happening Panel. Rob West, disseminator of information, Star Trek expert, Dakshin Whisperer, Christmas enthusiast. All right, starting again now because I pressed the wrong button. Rob, imagine me pressing the wrong button. You and technology never have gone along well. No, it's that plate in my head. So Rob West is with me, my uh, partner every morning on the top-rated Valley 92.7 FM oldies radio show, a legacy that we are leaving behind. We're touching lives every day, having a blast with thousands of people, and we laugh. We laugh every morning, Rob. We do, and people ask me when I'm out. They they say, you know, you, you laugh so easily, and, and I tell them, I say, well, first of all, I say, Mike makes me laugh. I said, you know, it's a, it's a really, it's a good thing to know. I get to go to work, 
and I'm going to laugh for four hours. I'm going to enjoy myself and uh, and laugh. Now, the rest of my job, sometimes I deal with things that aren't so nice. Yes. But I know for out for, that for four hours, I'm going to be able to sit in that room with you. And I'm going to have a good time and laugh. We do. We're like two high school kids and we laugh and we <laughs> we sing. We sing together, usually off <laughs> off air, but uh, but still. And we buy each other cool gifts. Now, I've known Rob, first of all, for over 20 years. And you have seen me uh, rise and fall. And then with your help, rise again to the top of the uh, broadcast game. So thank you for being such a dear friend and a colleague. Well, Thanks for dragging me along for the ride. And, and we have done a top-rated show, yeah, two separate stations in the same market. So that's kind of interesting. And the odd thing is we have no chemistry. <laughs> By the that's way, what, we, what we've been told. Yeah, we buy each other great uh, great gifts, too, because we buy each other the gifts that, that teenage kids would buy each other rather than, like, wives or, or friends that, you know, they buy you adult gifts for your birthday or your or your uh, or Christmas time, so it would be you know uh, a sweater or perhaps here's here's something like uh, some boots and practical gifts which are nice. Right. But we buy each other science fiction movies and and cool books about Star Trek and stuff like that. And you actually got me a couple of things in my 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 little studio here. I'm looking at the collage painting of the Universal Horror Monsters, which is one of my prized framed possessions, along with Rico Browning, who played the Gill Man in yes. Creature from the Black Lagoon. Now, isn't this strange? There were two actors that played the creature. Ben Chapman played the Gill Man when he was on land. But the underwater uh, scenes were done by Rico Browning, who... Um, you know, it was a great swimmer. You, you Could you imagine swimming? I mean, I don't want to go off on a tangent, even though I'm apt to do that. Could you imagine swimming in this giant suit, this this latex suit? That's crazy. Well, and I don't like being in water anyway. Uh, it, it is one of my, I'm not going to call it a phobia, um, but, you know, being in a pool or, you know, on a beach or in the ocean it just it doesn't appeal to me yeah so yeah the whole thought of doing that and then trying to do that in a latex monster suit or whatever it was at that time was probably too early for latex whatever it was uh, yeah it was probably fiberglass or some weird thing yeah but he uh now i think it's rico but it's it's r-i-c-o-u Riku Riku browning he when he by the time he got to play the creature from the Black Lagoon, he was actually um, like a diving and springboard champion. And he was doing local water shows, which you don't see a lot of those blow through town. Hey, kids, we're going to watch a (laughs) water show. A guy's going to swim underneath water and we're going to applaud that. They're not as popular as they once were. Yeah. Or the diving, uh, the diving donkeys, diving horses. They'd have those two back in the day. Yeah, I think uh, there might be. That might be a a tad abusive, for God's sake. Tad abusive. Tad abusive was your morning radio name when you were doing uh, uh, mornings in Seattle. Yeah, yeah. It was a hate-filled show. I was was a tad abusive. (laughs) You'd hang up on listeners. So so Rob and I wake up every morning, uh, spend five hours broadcasting the top-rated show in our uh, area, and we have a ball. And Rob has been my dear friend for... For a long time, 
And today I wanted to have you on because we share a lot of interests, but we also turn each other on to a lot of stuff. Like you recommended the reboot that happened, um, I don't know, 15 years ago now of Battlestar Galactica. And I'm going to go check that out. I'm really anticipating watching that. And, uh, you know, and, and we talk about horror movies we like and, and, and we're both fans of speculative fiction and science fiction and horror that's that's not cheesy or gory, but more psychological, like Legend of Hell House. I was so excited to get that for you on Blu-ray for Christmas. Yes, and I, I have still I've not watched that one. Now I watched um, I watched the other one, the uh, Sentinel. The you got Sentinel. me that one for Christmas. I watched that one, which weird little movie, but oh, uh, yes. also you know just one of the, it's it's horror without being gory like you said and and a little freaky a little freaky especially beverly d'angelo lord have mercy (laughs) and chris sarandon is in that too i think that might have been his first uh first movie role i'm not sure yeah some some really actually pretty big stars in that uh in that film yeah so because of uh our love of genre works and different things i wanted to have you on in our game changer uh, series here on the podcast, which is uh, a look at friends whose taste I appreciate in film, literature, and books, and music. Game changers, not necessarily our favorites, but yeah. uh, works of art that made us change our perspective of the uh, of the medium that they're that they were in. And you, when we were talking about celebrity birthdays the other day, Jules Verne came up and uh, it kind of slipped. That's one of your game changers. So we'll start with books. Go ahead. Yeah. yeah, And you mentioned Jules Verne. It was his birthday the other day and we were talking about it. And yeah, 20,000 leagues under the sea. I remember probably as a, maybe an early teen picking up that book. And I believe I read it for a book report that I did in uh, late grade school, early high school. And the, well, the way it is written, first of all, uh, you know, very visual. And so of course a good writer is, is going to be able to do that. But the whole idea, now I've been a, a science fiction fan uh, from the time I was a young child. When I first came across Star Trek as a young child, became a science fiction fan. And this whole 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the idea of science fiction Never leaving the planet was Ooh. just, it was kind of game changing to me. There's this whole, and to this day, you know, the oceans are the majority of the earth and we don't know what's in most of them. Right. Um, and the the way Jules Verne visualized what some of the things may, may be out there. Yeah. Um, just really, it was a game changer for me, a different perspective, a different way of looking at things. Yeah. And that book was written, you know, in the 18th, 1800s, and there were descriptions of futuristic submarines that have actually come true. And you see that in science fiction a lot, where they, they accurately not only predict occurrences in society, but they can predict technology. And uh, he definitely did that. And that, I think, was another thing that really drew me to this book, was the whole idea of, I, I it's, it's living on a plane I don't think I understand where you can visualize what things are going to look like 50, 100 years down the road. Yeah, yeah. Jules Verne, one of the, one of the fathers of science fiction and uh, adventure novels and, 
and he wasn't very pulpy. I mean, he he didn't have archetypal characters. He you actually got some insight into the characters. Captain Nemo yeah. was uh, was one of the all time greats. Yeah, and and and, and, and I would assume, I, I would think it's a great read still today. I'd pick that up and try it again. Yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, uh, Barnes and Noble has a a. A print that an imprint that they put out. I, I, is it Fall Creek is or Fall River? Fall River sometimes collects these uh, these authors, and they'll put out you know the entire H.P. Lovecraft, the entire Jules Verne, the entire uh, Edgar Allan Poe, and I pick those up. So if I come across that, that may yeah. find its way into another gift giving. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, like I, I'd like to actually read some of the Jules Verne that, that I have. And I probably only, have only seen the films. I don't know that I've actually read him. Yeah. Well, it, it's a great book. A very, uh, it's a page turner. I mean, you, you won't be able to put it down. Yeah. Yeah. Well, he, you know, around the world in 80 days is also, uh, yep. Yeah. And the movies, the movies were, a year or two ago. Did you really? Yeah. Just a year or two ago. I, I read around the world in 80 days. Fall river classics actually has 20,000 leagues under the sea in hardcover that uh, that is that is available. So I'm going to try to track that down for you. <laughs> Very cool. Very cool. All right. So that's that's Rob West's book. And it yeah. uh, makes you want to go seek out some Jules Verne. And and so now let's go to album because you have an eclectic uh, taste in music as well. And you and I both have an affinity for 70s pop because that was our era we grew up in. right and so we know those songs and we we probably know more about people like andy kim <laughs> and <laughs> and you know bands like uh lobo than most people don't even know who to sing these songs but we know their background because of our yeah. job but uh, i'm interested in hearing what album was the uh, game changer for you you know i think this one's going to surprise you a little bit mike um partridge Although, family christmas very very mainstream oh, okay no actually um that is one of my favorite stories because rob comes from a very uh <laughs> very proper family good people uh yeah. strong you know strong deep christian roots and uh it's it's you and your sister right yeah just me and my sister we're the only two uh siblings in the family yeah and so you grew up with a lot of uh you know Music that was probably, I'm guessing, uh, not too edgy. And your mom finally said, I'm going to, you know, this rock and roll thing. The kids are into it. And she brought home a rock and roll album for you, didn't she? She did. At Christmas time, it was the uh, Partridge Family Christmas album. (laughs) And uh, yeah, to this day, it is still one of my favorite Christmas albums and one of my favorite memories. Because at at Christmas now, in Christmas, you know, I love I love Christmas. You are. You're a Christmas aficionado. Anybody who listens knows my affinity for Christmas. Yes. And every year on Christmas Eve. It was the only time mom and dad would let us do it. We could go to bed listening to music. You know, I was a little kid. And so we would stack up the Christmas albums. They had three or four of them. And they would play side A of these three or four albums. And that was our music going to bed. And Partridge Family (laughs) Christmas album. And you had a crush on Susan Day, didn't you? Well, yeah. Who didn't at that time? I still do. I still do. (laughs) Right. You know, it's weird. You talk about those albums that were tied into um, television shows. I still have, because when I was such a 
I mean, such a small child. I was, it must have been two or three when Bronson was on. And one of my great toys as a child was a red little motorcycle that I was, I was small enough to be able to ride this thing around the house. That's how small it was. You know, this little toy motorcycle. And I would watch Bronson, which was Michael Parks, the great actor, as a drifter. Um, And he would, you know, go town to town and get into adventures. I don't remember actually any of the episodes except the opening montage of him driving this motorcycle and Long Lonesome Highway was the theme song. And Hmm. I have collected that album every time I've seen it now. I'll see it in record stores and Goodwills and thrift stores and if I can find a mint copy of it, I'll bring it home because my original copy is, yeah. you know, is beat. I mean, from, you know, you give a child a record, forget about it. But, um, but yeah, it's funny that they're, they're, they're tie-ins. And that was probably the first record album that was bought for me as a child as well by my mom would have yeah. been, uh, because it had the picture of him on his motorcycle on the cover. I had to have it. Sure. And I know every one of those songs by heart, which is bizarro. Oh, and, and the funny thing, to this day, and especially the way people listen to music now, where, you know, you don't have to listen to the first cut of the album, to the second cut of the album, right. you don't have to listen through the album, but still being able, a song ends and you're thinking it's going into whatever the next cut was on the album. <laughs> right, you know? right. And it doesn't happen anymore. It but, shuffles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We were talking about that, how Yoko Ono could slip in songs that you didn't necessarily want to hear on a John Lennon album, but that was the beauty of eight track. You could not escape it. There was no fast forward. (laughs) There was no lifting the needle. You had eight track. You had to listen to every song, whether you liked it or not. I I loved how you said uh, Yoko Ono song. You might not necessarily want to listen to. I I don't know (laughs) if anybody that says I'm going to set out to listen to a Yoko Ono song. I wonder if there's anybody out there and there's gotta be, because it's a crazy diverse world getting crazier uh, by the day. Somewhere someone's got a favorite band and they say, oh, Yoko Ono is my favorite musical artist. There's got to be at least someone. (laughs) John, you know, that's a great love story. I got the more I delve into the history of the Beatles and the mythology that came with their personal lives. That was a great love story, John and Yoko. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So uh, and I'm I I love her son and her. her, She and John had uh, a son, Sean Lennon. I like both their sons musically. Julian kind of dropped out of the musical scene. But Sean Lennon, I love everything that kid does. He just a very creative cat. And he he comes from good genes, you know. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So your so your album is not the Partridge Family Christmas. It it is not. And I think it's going to surprise you a little bit, Mike, because you know me. But I think to me. The uh, album that that kind of changed the whole my whole look at the genre would probably be Michael Jackson's Thriller. Thriller, yeah. That is now up until that time in history. If you think about albums up until that time, they were made with a good song on them. Maybe uh-huh. maybe 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 a good song on on side A and a good song on side B to get you to listen to the album. But then it was just a bunch of junk. A I mean, bunch they, of filler, were, yes. Right. Yeah. Right. But, yeah. When you, but when you look at Thriller, I mean, that album from, you know, Wanna Be Starting Something to Thriller, The Girl Is Mine, Beat It, Billy Jean, Human Nature, PYT, Pretty Young Thing, top to bottom, strong oh, yeah. album. Well, it's as much Quincy Jones' album 
as it is Michael Jackson's. That was such sure. a collaboration between those two that uh, it's fully realized. And one hit after another. The, there were yeah. few and far between the albums that were like that. They were just complete blockbusters. And another thing about that album that really stands out is the amount of money put into the production of it. They treated this thing like it was a like it was a film. It was everything from the promotion, the sound, the orchestration, the musicians they got. Yeah, thrill. I'm going to go back and listen to Thriller. I haven't listened to yeah. that in years, but it is, yeah. like you said, every single song is a knockout. And and after that, there came a series of you know really good albums, just strong albums from top to bottom. Mm-hmm. But but before Thriller, that just really wasn't heard of. It was it was a bunch of throwaway music and a couple of good songs. Yeah, it raised and, the bar for uh, for the top of the heap pop stars. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yep. Good one. Could you do the moonwalk? No. Oh no. No no no. I, I mean. When you know, I've got dogs, so I go outside and I step in something. Maybe I could do a little something that kind of looks like it. That's called the no. poop walk. Yeah, <laughs> when you back out of your dog's poopy poops. How many yeah. dogs do you have, Rob? We have four. Four lovely little pups. Yeah. And your 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 favorite breed, of course, the Dachshund. Yes, love love my Dachshunds. Grew up with Dachshunds and. Have pretty much had a dachshund in my life from the time I was five. So that's nice. They're they're loving dogs and they're very cute. And, and now now the the latest addition to your canine uh, collection is Floofy, and he's a mutt, isn't he? Like a beagle. <laughs> yeah. yeah, his actual name is Dodger. We call him Floofy Snoof because he has a, a fluffy nose. Everybody, but, does. Uh, yeah, you got to have a nickname for your animal, or else you're not a real pet owner. Yeah, but he's a mutt. We don't we don't know what he is, um, but he's uh, he's we got him when he was just three months old and uh, he's about, he'll be a year old here in, in about a month. So, and you're a dachshund whisperer because when my mother-in-law and father-in-law were at my home for a summertime party, their dog Duke stays right by my mother-in-law. It will, it will not leave her side. And he, you know, he's a little dachshund, but when, when you came, he was like, Oh, I know this, this guy and me, we're going to vibe. And he came right over to you. Yeah, I think dachshunds know dachshund people, and, yeah. and it's really funny. <laughs> every every time, so most of our dachshunds have been rescues, uh, and and every time we go to adopt a dachshund, you know, they as a as a rescue group, they say, now you know this is a dachshund, and they're a little, and it, I always cut them off and say, we speak dachshund very fluently in my house. Yeah, so the dachshund whisperer, Rob West. Yeah, well, that's what my family calls me is the Dachshund Whisperer. We do a lot of talking on the uh, morning radio show that we share. Um, when we host, we often talk about pop culture. We talk about celebrities. We talk about films, music, and stuff every day on the show. And one of the one of the bits we do is a mystery movie. It's a little contest where we play a snippet of dialogue. And today... It was uh, Jeremiah Johnson, one of my all-time favorite films. And it one of those things happened to where someone asks you if you did something because a caller called up. And this is, this is one of those weird instances that people do that yeah. drive me crazy. Mm-hmm. They call and ask you if you did something mistakenly. And yeah. you, you answer, no, you did not. And then they still correct you on it. 
Yeah. So yeah. after I played Jeremiah Johnson, when I led up to it, I give some clues to the mystery movie. And I said, Rob, this movie was when Robert Redford ruled the Hollywood roost. He was the biggest star. It's a great film. And, you know, who could forget the collaborations between Paul Newman and Robert Redford? They were just the two most bankable stars in their films together were fantastic. And then, of course, he did, you know, All the President's Men with Dustin Hoffman. I went on and I said, but this film uh, is our mystery film. And I played a snippet of dialogue. Someone guessed Jeremiah Johnson. It was over with. And a woman called up and said, Paul Newman was not in Jeremiah Johnson. And I said, well, I didn't I didn't say that. I was just mentioning in leading up to that, that indeed it was during the heyday when Paul Newman and Robert Redford. And she said, well, he wasn't Robert Redford, but I, but I just told you, I didn't make that mistake and you're still, and these are the things that Rob knows about me that people don't, that this will drive me crazy all day. If I would have said, Oh, he wasn't, then you correct me. No, honey, right. Robert Redford was a solo star in what you're already saying is your favorite movie. So how would I not know that Paul Newman wasn't in it? But after yeah. I even said, I'm sorry, Rob. Talk me down. See, this is what this is Rob's real job. Yes, People he's there. Yeah. He's there to give us the news. He's there to um, <laughs> to banter with me and have fun. But a lot of times off the air, Rob is there to talk me down from yeah. complete snapping. Yeah, yeah. Quite often, Michael say something. I'm going, no, no. I don't. I don't think we'll say that one on the air. It's, a, it's very funny. It's very good. But no, I don't. I don't think we'll use that one. But you, you had to get us on to another subject because I was, I was fixated. I'm like, she corrected me for something that I yeah. didn't, that I didn't, that wasn't mistaken. Yeah, yeah. And, and, it, and it's hard. I mean, in 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 our business, especially. For me as a news guy. Oh, and, now and see, you, you're the same way. If someone corrects your news, yes. Yes. boy, that'll stick with you for a, for a couple hours. Oh, and somebody call somebody. And, and if I've made a mistake, please let me know. I mean, I, I really I don't want to be wrong, but generally I know what I'm talking about yeah. before I hit the air. And uh, boy, somebody called the other day and, and they start off by saying, now I know you're a Cubs fan. And I'm oh, like, oh, boy, really? You know I'm a Cubs fan. How do you know that? Because I'm not. I never have been a Cubs fan. And and ah, it set me it's, off. And, it's still and, you said the other day that was during baseball season. That was months ago. <laughs> it's still stuck up your ass. And this is, is my because Rob actually got visibly you got visibly mad. And this guy, how much how petty could you be? This yeah. cat was upset that you gave the Cubs score before the Sox score. Yes. Who cares? It's you're just reporting the sports. Yeah, people hear what they want to hear. People I know Rob they, is a I know Rob is a Cubs fan, but why doesn't he put the Sox score for? Who cares if you put the the, the, the point is not the order of telling the scores; it's just telling the scores. But see, I'm not a Cubs fan. No, it's it's a, it's weird out there, man. It's riding the wild airwaves, you never know what you're going to bump into. Absolutely. All right. So we have your album and we have your, your awesome book. I'm interested in the film, the game changer film. Rob is a film watcher, saw this particular movie and it changed her perce- the perception of the medium for you. Well, and I've got, I've got three of them. Okay. That's and, fine. So this is, this is a little difficult for me to choose because each of them changed the genre for me in a different way. Okay. 
Okay, so I don't know how you want to handle that. No, go one, two, three. So, okay, so the first one I'm going to throw out there, which this is not going to surprise you at all, is Star Wars. Star Wars, sure. Now, with the CGI and the way that film was put together, the original Star Wars, that was the first time you could sit in a theater and actually believe you were there. Yeah. The, you know, special effects before then were as good as they were going to be, but they were still hokey. They were, and, and again, as mentioned earlier, big Star Trek fan, but the, 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 you know, the special effects, not good in, in most of Star Trek, as good as they could be for the sixties and for the TV show. Yeah. Right. But then in 1979, when the original Star Wars came out, you were sitting in the, in the theater and you believed you were watching these ships shoot at each other. And you know, it's weird. Star Wars um, was one of those films that my friends and I would take the bus to Ford city mall and you would see it three or four times. You would wait in line for two and a half hours to get into the theater. And sometimes they would sell out and you would have to get a later uh, airing time or, or, yeah. or run time. So you'd go next door and bowl for a couple of hours and then go, but this was a full morning, but it was all about seeing star Wars and, yeah. And uh, yeah, I remember going to see that multiple times and the cantina scene, like you said, yeah, the makeup effects were kind of <laughs> yeah. kind of hokey and cheesy, but it still it still worked. It yeah. still worked. Yeah. Yeah. And then the next one uh, for me and this one changed. By I'm the way, big... it was a 1977 film, if I'm not, cor- if wow. I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So we were younger than we thought. And I'm a big action adventure guy. I, I love action adventure films and always have. Now, this, the next film on my list changed movie to me to, to be able to see it as storytelling. Okay. As, and that's the Shawshank Redemption. Shawshank Redemption. Holy cow. Yeah. Not only a lot of great acting in that film, the great story, but really... To me, that awakened the genre as storytelling. Yeah. Yeah. Everything from Morgan Freeman on. I mean, just a great, great film. Oh, Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, yeah. and such depth to those characters as well. And they had, you know, I'm trying to think who else was in the Shawshank Redemption. Uh, some great uh, character, James Whitmore, was in that. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. uh, Larry Brandenburg, who's one of those guys that's in everything. You just don't know his name. You go, oh, I see that actor in everything. Right. Yeah. Right. And, and, and again, just it, it changed to me. It changed movies from just something you go to to see things blow up mm-hmm. to to really a, d- a deep story. Just the depth of the story of, of uh, storytelling. That went yeah, on there. definitely not a popcorn movie. This was more of a, you, you don't passively watch Shawshank Redemption. No, beautiful, no. beautiful pick. Yeah. Yeah. And then, and then the, the last one, and this one changed the, the genre for me for a bad reason. Okay. But you know, going back to Shawshank Redemption, just for sure. a moment before we move on, it's odd because I love that film, but I have a hard time watching it because I don't like films. And I know you're going to make a joke here. I don't, I, I have a hard time watching films set in prison. <laughs> you can, you can draw your own conclusions that's, as to why there, folks, but uh, that's that. 
Bad memories, Mike. It just, it just, <laughs> it just throw me off a little. I get like, I get like, I have to shake it off a little bit. But yeah, what a movie, Shawshank Redemption. Okay, it, it, Morgan Freeman in that scene where he's going for parole, and he's, he's like, just shuffle your papers and let me go back to my cell. Yeah, you know? right, right. I, I know it's going to happen here. Just shuffle your papers and let me go back to this. To yeah, going, he knew they were going through the motions. Yeah. Yep. Crazy and and then the the last of the films and this one like I said it, it kind of changed things for me not just it didn't just change uh, movies for me uh, but it actually changed my way of looking at life and not in a good way oh and and that's Forrest Gump now Forrest hang Gump. with me and yeah. I know your feeling I know your feelings about Forrest Gump but hang with me yes since that movie I can't believe anything I see. Isn't, you know, because of the manipulation of footage. Yeah. Yeah. If they can make Tom Hanks shake hands with President Kennedy or Lyndon Johnson (laughs) or be on or be on the uh, on the uh, field in Vietnam, which I mean that. But but shaking hands with a former president that, you know, is long dead. Yes. What else? I can't believe anything I see. What else can be manipulated by technology? Yes. Yep. And you know that sort of um, that sort of I don't know what they what they call that technique in film, but um, that was used in a couple of films in comedic effect. Uh, Dead wear, Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid, the Steve Martin and Carl Reiner collaboration. Woody Allen did it in uh, Z League, where he yeah. was someone that was just um, present in different monumental moments in history. But yeah, that 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 is a good point. That uh, but see I, again, you know my problem, of course, Tom Hanks, right? Um, America's sweetheart, everybody loves Tom Hanks. But there's something about Tom Hanks, Betty White, and Tony Bennett <laughs> that I do not trust. There's something. It's a vibe. I know Betty White. How could you not love her? God rest her soul. I didn't trust her. There was something about Tony Bennett the same way. Everybody loves Tony Bennett. He's crooning up there and he's, he's singing such beautiful songs, but man, there's something, some, same thing with Tom Hanks. He's a little too nice. There's something underneath the surface of that cat. So yeah, Yeah. Forrest Gump and plus, um, (laughs) and this is blasphemy for film lovers. I didn't like his performance in Forrest Gump. I didn't buy yeah. it, but um, yeah, yeah. I mean, there there was a lot going on in that film. But but, but you stepped back and said, "Wait a second! If they could do that in this movie, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, that's a how good can point. I believe? How can I believe anything that I'm not actually there to see anymore? Yeah, yeah. It's it, you know what? You got a point. Well, there's people who don't believe that we were ever on the moon because of that exact uh, that exact assumption. My my mom is one of those. Really? My mother does not believe we've ever been to the moon. <laughs> yep. Yep. We I, got, I, we got to get her on the show between the Partridge family <laughs> and the moon landing. We got a heck of a show ahead of us. Uh, I don't know that she'd ever do it, but we could always try. No, you are always in depth and uh, perfect. Thank you so much. And uh, so what are you doing for dinner? Cause I, it is the middle of the afternoon. I just woke up from a two hour nap Nice. And uh, because that's what morning men from radio shows do. We take mid- yeah. midday naps because if you don't, then you're going to bed at six o'clock at night. And that, that that's that's not normal. No, I you know, I, yeah, I don't know. I'm hoping fried chicken. I really want some fried chicken. Fried chicken. Tonight, that so sounds good. Yeah. I some and some mashed potatoes. I mean, just the whole thing. It would be a really nice dinner. So that's what I'm hoping. 
but I don't know. I haven't uh, haven't talked to the wife yet about. And you're the primary cook in your household, right? I am. Yes. Um, she spends more time at home now than I do. So she actually carries more of the cooking duties than she has in the last 37 years we've been married. But um, but yeah, it's uh, I'm hoping fried chicken tonight. That's what I'm going for. All right. Well, it's my daughter and I tonight because my wife is working. So we'll have uh, perhaps salmon. I don't know. I have to check with her. If not, I throw hot dogs in the microwave and then I tell my daughter, you're on your own. Hot dogs are good. Yeah. (laughs) And on that note, folks, (laughs) that's the quote of the day, the phrase that pays. Hot dogs are good. Rob West, thank you, my dear friend, and I will see you in the morning. Talk to you later. Dogs are good.